Many people are alarmed by the recent rise of anti-Semitic rhetoric and attacks, both in Israel and abroad. In these uncertain times and polarized political racial tensions, it's critical to address this issue. So please join me in this important discussion on anti-Semitism on the rise. Is history repeating itself? How should we look at it and what can we do about it? Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, and we will be speaking about a very relevant and current painful topic, anti-Semitism on the rise, is history repeating itself. This program is dedicated by Susan Shoeki in memory of Lisa Shoeki Blank, a very special daughter, sister, wife, mother, and friend. May her memory be for a blessing. Many people are alarmed by the recent rise of anti-Semitic rhetoric, but worse, anti-Semitic attacks, both in connection with Israel and the United States and other places in the world. So it seems that that cancer of anti-Semitism, which has haunted history, has not gone away. Should we be alarmed? Is it indeed on the rise? What can we do about it? Now, in truth, we have to be addressing all forms of discrimination, racism, prejudices, stereotypes. But as has been coined the miner's canary, anti-Semitism throughout history was always a barometer that unfortunately gave a foretaste of what was coming. You first attack the Jews and then the rest of the world. Look what happened with Hitler's Nazi Germany. The miners' canaries, an analogy used that in the good old days when they would mine. So going down under the ground, often these mines were filled with toxic and dangerous and life-threatening uh, fume, fumes. So what they would do is they would put a canary in a cage and put it down into the mine. Canaries have very sensitive lungs. And if they pulled it up and the canary was dead or deeply impacted, they knew that was not a place to go. So miners' canary became an analogy that if you want to know what's coming, the canary, the miners' canary, can tell you. So if, a, if a, any country or any empire begins to turn on the Jews, you can rest assured that trouble is coming for everyone. Because injustice is injustice. Now, why are Jews the miners' canary? Why are they the lightning rod? That's an important discussion of its own. I've talked about this, and you can go to MeaningfulLife.com and I have some, I think, interesting and uh, insightful analysis on the roots of anti-Semitism, but that's not what I want to address now. I want to address our current times. I want to share a, 
around a year ago, a little no, less than a year ago, when BLM began to become prominent, Black Lives Matter. So there's an attorney I know who's to come to my classes, very fine man, liberal thinking individual, and we were on a conversation probably six months ago. And he was telling me that he's very much involved in the BLM movement. He represents, he feels the injustices, of course, George Floyd's murder, well, brought it all back to the surface again. And he was telling me he was going to a certain march. And as we were speaking, I asked him a question. I said to him, I think he said to me, actually, he said to me, he said to me, you know, you're a very fine man, and I always see you representing good causes. Why aren't you part of this movement? And I said to him, well, as far as discrimination goes and racism goes, we the Jews have always stood with anyone, whether Jew or non-Jew, that's been discriminated against. As a matter of fact, we're told in the Torah, you were a stranger in, in a land of that, not your own, which is, of course, Egypt, so be kind to the strangers. So if anyone is sensitive and acutely sensitive to any form of discrimination, it's we, the Jewish people. The thing is, I said to him, it's also become embroiled in politics. And I often see things that are not necessarily what I'm happy to see. So if you talked about purely dealing with someone being discriminated against because of color of skin or race or culture or religion, absolutely. But then I said to him the other way around. I asked him a question. I said, you know, um, a year, a little over a year ago, two years ago, was the massacre, the attack in Pittsburgh in the synagogue. And I said, I didn't see you involved in that. And there wasn't one man was murdered. A bunch of Jews were murdered simply because they're Jewish. Now, I'm not saying because you're Jewish you should be specifically, but it's also your own family. So I have to understand, why is it that you choose which discrimination to represent? And I was not trying to dismiss other forms of racism. And he says to me, a good man says to me, you know, you sound like a racist. So I said to him, What? Why? Because I brought that up? That's not minimizing what you're doing. I just want to understand how we make choices like this. And I remember, well, I don't remember, reading that during the Holocaust, when six million Jews were being massacred and slaughtered in Europe, American Jews, and for that matter, most people, were pretty quiet. So I'm not, that does not throw aspersions on somebody defending some other form of discrimination, but you start wondering, what's going on here? Is this a is this a fair approach? Is there a double standard here? I mean, they talk about Israel and Israel's atrocities. We all know the UN's resolutions are all mostly about Israel. You know what kind of atrocities are happening in other countries? That's not defending something wrong that may have happened in Israel. But that tells you something. And if someone's not ready to speak openly in that fashion, it's not a real conversation because then there's other agendas. And someone once said to me, well, the Jews have learned how to survive and they're resilient. They don't, they're not inferior. They're smart. They're wealthy. So I said, so that's why, what? That's why anti-Semitism is tolerated more than other forms of racism. Is that justifiable? I don't know if it's accurate to say, if it's an actual accurate historical fact, but they say Constantine, the emperor of Rome, who made Christianity the official religion of Rome, which then, of course, Gave, began to spread all over the, became what it became, the, the religion of Christianity. 
a worldwide movement. So they say that they had asked Constantine, his, his advisor said, why don't we kill all the Jews? Because they were the Christ killers. And we don't need to be reminded of them, which of course was always felt like a threat. The Jews who were always here before. So his response, they say, I think it's in Constantine's sword, in the book, or elsewhere I read it, that he had said, no, if we destroy them all, we won't have a convenient scapegoat. This way we will always be able to, when necessary, blame the Jews for something. If it's accurate or not, as I said, I don't know. But it's an interesting theory. Because you see, that's exactly what happened. Very often when there were all kinds of grievances, it was easy just pull off a pogrom against the Jews. The Jews are always to blame. Has, is, is, are there, um, are there uh, remnants of that still remaining today? It seems so. But again, I'm not looking to analyze anti-Semitism. I'm looking at, to look at it with a clear head. So why is it seeming, seemingly on the rise? And should we be alarmed? Well, in general, just for the record, I am not alarmed. I'm alarmed, of course, every attack on an innocent person, Jew or non-Jew, is alarming. And especially on Jews, on synagogues. Using the events that happened in Israel as an excuse, so to speak, packaging uh, anti-Semitism. It's not anti-Semitism, it's anti-Zionism. So if it's anti-Zionism, why are you attacking a, a synagogue in, uh, in France or in New York or in California or in Pittsburgh? So in other words, where's exactly the line drawn? So I'm not alarmed, not because that isn't something to be alarmed by. We need to heighten our security and do whatever is possible to speak about, which is what I'm doing right now. I'm not alarmed for a different reason. Is it truly history repeating itself? That's the question. So there have always been two schools of thought. One school of thought was that, listen, we had a golden age in Spain, and look what happened. Then the Spanish king and queen expelled all the Jews in 1492. We had a golden age in Europe, in Germany, in France, in Central Europe. And then look what happened. The Nazis rose. So why are you so confident that the world cannot rise again? We say in Hebrew words, it should never happen. I shouldn't even utter it from our mouths. But I want to present the arguments. I need to state it. There are those that feel that way, especially those that grew up, either children of Holocaust survivors or other such experiences, so they have fear inside of them, and they've actually lived it. And it's a good argument to be made. Why are we so overconfident? That's one school of thought. Who actually dismisses any other school of thought as being naive, unrealistic, and just assuming everything is going to be great. But there is another school of thought, and I'm not talking about the ones that are naive or ignoring, and right now it's comfortable, I don't think about tomorrow. As they invoke as well, that in Europe there were those that said everything's going to be fine. But there is another school of thought that says the world has changed. The world has become a better place. And though, yes, we have what happened in World War II and previously the pogroms and prior to that the, the, the inquisitions and the different persecutions and expulsions and genocides throughout history, but the world has slowly become a better place. To give one example, the United States of America, founded just a few hundred years ago, is a country that became a haven for Jews, and for that matter, all minorities. And not just a haven because somebody was compassionate. Like you can have a compassionate, you had compassionate kings and queens and leaders that were compassionate. 
But that was either a fluke or an anomaly. We're talking about a country, a, a country in, based on the institutionalized principles that all men are created equal and have unalienable rights endowed to them by the Creator, the freedom of religion, freedom of expression. That never existed prior to the United States. The fact that other countries did not embrace those principles, okay, but it took time. Today, you go to a website, for example, Freedom House. It documents the trajectory of what they call three types of countries. Free, semi-free, and not free. And you see it's continuously going up. More countries are becoming free. Free is divided by, is defined by um, social, civil rights, um, free elections, and some other criteria they use. Semi-free is partially so, and non-free, of course, are completely still controlled by the state or by, by a dictator or by, one, by a party or one individual. So that doesn't mean that we still don't have work to be done, but if you look at that trajectory, that tells you something. And the second school of thought also introduces into the argument that we also have a belief system that believes the world is coming to a better place and will come to a better place. It's called a messianic vision, a utopian world, which will achieve world peace and the eradication of famine and hate and all forms of inhumanity and injustice from one human being to another. And that's built on a theology and a philosophy that God created the universe with a purpose, gave a human being a mission to come into this world and illuminate it. And instead of succumbing and being seduced by our lower angels, our, by our demons, in a selfish, self-interest-driven, egocentric life, which ultimately creates divisiveness, which is ultimately the root for war and battle and every form of injustice, that we should reverse that temptation and bring light into the world, to be light into the world, to be giving to be generous, virtue, the principles of civilization that were introduced by Abraham 3,800 years ago and that became the foundation of every civilization. So though at the time Abraham and his wife Sarah were just two individuals, pioneer, that stood up against nonconformists, against the paganism of the world in which they lived, but slowly in time they taught it to their children their children would become the Jewish people who received this mandate at Sinai 3,333 years ago. And slowly it would become part of the universe, not just Jews. A while later, you have the birth of Christianity based on those biblical principles originated by Abraham, the pioneer. And then a while later, Islam. And today, combining Christianity and Islam, you're talking about almost four, four and a half billion people on this planet that embrace the standards. I'm not saying individually everyone's living up to it, but that's a big achievement because once upon a time there weren't, such a, there weren't such standards. Has it permeated every country in the world? No, it hasn't. But when you see such a trajectory of nations of the world, I'm not talking about the, the, the small minority called the Jewish people who are only 14 and a half million population. So then that gives you a lot of reason for hope. The fact that there are ups and downs and things are not perfect means there's more work to be done. But the fact that we do live in a world today, and I speak now as a Jew, in a world where we have to appreciate the freedoms 
because we can send our children to any school we wish. There's no fear of someone arresting you for being Jewish or for behaving in a Jewish way. And for that matter, I go again with every religion and every minority and every group, whoever they may be, despite color, race, culture, and so on. That's not something to be dismissed. That means on an institutional level, which means to become part of a government and part of a way of, ru of ruling the, each country, there are these fundamental rights and the recognition that a creator created us all. Those that wander away from that principle, which actually goes against U.S. law, we're talking about the United States and the same thing with laws all around the world, are actually, first of all, breaking the law and going against that spirit, and that indeed does become the root of all racism. I remember when I was, um, when Toward a Meaningful Life was published, this was uh, 1995 originally, so we're talking about 26 years ago. So the publisher, William Morrow, set me on a book tour, which included a lot of radio, TV, print, interviews. Internet was just beginning for the public. So there was an interview planned for, scheduled for, I remember it was the day before Yom Kippur. That's what minds reminds me. It was a radio interview in the Miami area that actually covered a few states. It was a large show. It was an important show. And it was all planned for 11 o'clock in the morning. I think, I'm not sure what day in the week it was. Anyway, that morning, the same morning, was the O.J. Simpson verdict came out, that he was acquitted. So the producer calls me and says, I love your book. We we're going to do a great interview with you. It was an hour interview, I believe. However, this breaking news is on everybody's minds. That's the headlines right now. And no one's going to be interested in anything else. So let's push it off. We'll cover what we need to cover, and we'll interview in time. I was told, when you're in the door, you don't go out of the door. So I said, why don't we talk about O.J. Simpson? She said, you have something to say? I said, yeah. If people read my book, we wouldn't have all these problems. Now, I wasn't sure what I was going to say, to be honest, but I felt confident that I've come up with something. Okay, so then, we have a, then I have to go book another uh, guest. I have you, but we have to stick to that topic. I said, by all means. And our interview was a few hours later, and that's what we did, 11 o'clock. So the interview began, and I just, I'll share with you the, not the entire interview, but just a few key points that I wanted to bring up. So first thing I opened up, I said, I want to just share with your audience that while the entire country is, is, is in, the entire country is in uproar about the verdict and if you may recall, those that remember, there was a great polarization at the time. On one hand, there were the, many of the blacks supported the, and celebrated in the streets the acquittal. Many whites or others found it to be a uh, travesty of justice. If the glove don't fit, you got to acquit. If you remember the jingle. So it itself was a whole, I said, that whole hoo-ha that's going on in the headlines you have to remember there's a small group of people called the Jews who are preparing right now for the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, where they're going to meet God face to face, soul to soul, essence to essence. And many are not even aware of this verdict. And I remember the interviewer saying to me, so what's your point? I said, my point is we have to put things into context. There was a great Hasidic rabbi, his name was Rav Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev. 
And he said once, going to Yom Kippur, he was the chazan, he was the cantor. So he went to the, 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 the platform where you lead the prayers. And he said, in Yiddish he said, the Prussians, there was the Prussian Empire, say that their king is the greatest. The French say that their emperor is the greatest. The Russians say their czar is the greatest. And I, Levi Yitzhak ben Sarasosha, which is his Hebrew, his Hebrew name, say, Yiskadal Rabba. That God's great name is extolled, is sanctified, is hallowed. In other words, context. Yes, it may be important news, but there's also something greater, the bigger picture. So that's the first thing I'd like to share. And then regarding the actual facts, I will share with you, there, there are, are symptoms of a problem and there's a roots of a, the roots of a problem. So symptoms have to be addressed short term. You get a Band-Aid, you do whatever it takes to resolve racial tensions and so on as much as you can. But often that's not enough. You need to go to the root. So my book, I have a story, Toward a Meaningful Life, it just was published, that I believe if we embrace this principle, we would prevent and preempt all these tensions between the different, between the blacks and the whites and the different cultures that are clashing right now. And that's a story that happened in 1991 when there were the racial riots. There was a riot, some call it a pogrom in Crown Heights, where I lived. It followed after an accident, a tragic accident, where a Jewish driver, the entourage of the Rebbe, had hit a black boy, Gavin Cato, and killed, unfortunately, a little black child. So then the response, which didn't even come from the community, it was people who incited and used it for their own political purposes, literally went and began to vandalize and loot and break windows, and they ultimately killed in cold blood, not by accident. Yankel Rosenbaum on President Street and Brooklyn Avenue in Crown Heights. And the police were told to stand down. The mayor then was David Dinkins, black mayor. Let them vent. We've heard that before, right? Anyway, weeks passed. The tensions lowered a bit. And Mayor Dinkins came to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe by dollars. He would give out dollars every Sunday. And he says to the Rebbe, and this is the story that I bring in the chapter, I believe it's on the chapter of love, actually. Or uh, the chapter on unity. I don't remember which chapter. One of the chapters I bring the story. So the mayor tells the Rebbe, I'd like a blessing for unity among the two peoples, the blacks and the Jews, blacks and the whites. The Rebbe responded, it's not two peoples. It's one people under one God, under one administration. Think about it. You know what that means? That means exactly what it says in the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. All people are created equal. Everyone created the divine image using the biblical term. And it makes no difference. So it's not two peoples. Yes, there may be different cultures. There may be different religions, faiths, belief systems, customs, traditions, rituals. But fundamentally... All, all creations of God. Basically, all different musical notes in one large symphony. That's my addition here. And when you see it that way, your problem is part of my problem. Think of one body, one organism. If one arm is ailing, the other arm is ailing. The whole concept of divisiveness and prejudice 
of injustice one against another goes against the fundamental principle of reality, according to this belief system, that we're all equal under God. We're all one. And I said, if that was taught in the schools in the United States and all over the world, we wouldn't have this type of divide. Not even getting into the verdict of O.J. Simpson, was it correct, was it not correct, was it... Was he, uh, was he, later he was convicted in civil court, in civil damages, and so on. That's not relevant here, because I always wanted to talk about the very, I mean, it's relevant, but it's not the relevant issue, uh, the, fun, the underlying issue. So based on that, there's a second school of thought, that the world is getting a better place, is, is becoming a better place, has become a better place, and that indeed, history is not repeating itself. Is there legitimacy to the argument? Of course there is, because when you come from that approach, that we've been here, done that, and look, look what happened. But I want to introduce that there's another approach. That though we need to be vigilant and not tolerate zero tolerance of any form of discrimination, of any form of anti-Semitism, and any other form of anti-anything, that there's another critical undercurrent going on, and that is that the world has become a better place, and we have to expect that from each other. So there's one way of fighting, because there's a difference. If you take these two schools of thought, and let me just sum them up. One is, nothing's really changed. We just had a lull in history. You know, don't take it for granted. We've seen what happened in Spain and Germany and other places. So then that, that, that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is, no, we do have ups and downs, and we do have difficulties, and no one's questioning any type of uh, injustice or attack, but the world is a much fundamentally better place. So this actually translates into two different strategies. According to the first school of thought, the only strategy is defense. To do everything possible to defend ourselves against our enemies, to call out any type of attack, any type of violence, prosecute to the fullest extent. Basically, essentially, it's going to war against these forces that will always be simmering and sometimes will come to the surface as they are doing now. The second approach agrees with that first step, but that's only one part of it. That's dealing like putting up, like locking your door at night. Obviously being prudent and vigilant against any attacks, and prosecuting and doing whatever you need to do. Having a strong army in Israel, being strong security wherever we may be, and not being naive about it. But the second approach also introduces another aspect to the strategy, offense that the human race should be called upon to live up to its divine image in which it was created, that we are really all one. And that needs to be taught to our children from the youngest age, not mid at mid, because once they already have developed distorted views, it's very hard to change that. But regardless, a tremendous campaign for both children and adults of changing the way we think, and we don't even need to invoke religious texts, even though it would help, just invoke the Declaration of Independence. Just live up to that line. All people are created equal. When I say all men, they write men, but they mean, of course, men and women. But I, I just want to emphasize because some people didn't always interpret it that way. And all have inalienable, unalienable or inalienable rights endowed to us by the Creator. So despite whether you agree or disagree with someone, they, are, they have a birthright, the divine birthright to their opinion, and to their being, forget about opinion only. Their very existence is divine. Because they're put here by, the God, by God. 
If you disagree with someone, even if you adamantly disagree, there are ways to disagree. Abraham taught us how to disagree. He actually prayed for infidels. This doesn't mean you, you accept. If someone does a crime, there are ways, there are laws how to deal with a crime. So it's not like you're tolerating. Even if it's your own brother and sister, they did a crime, they did a crime. Just because we're all one doesn't mean that, no, that we are oblivious to people's uh, behavior. But fundamentally, there's no essential difference in the sense that there's no essential racism because it all comes down to that aspect. As soon as you feel another person is another, not one under one God, as the Rebbe told David Dinkins, that's where all the root of all problems, the root of all problems begin from there. Now you'll say, well, that sounds very naive. But, I, but remember, I, 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 said, I qualified that before by saying, in addition to all other things we do. So I firmly believe that history does not have to repeat itself and will not repeat itself, but it's up to us. We have responsibility now. We can't just say, let's hunker down and just defend ourselves and re- get ready for yet another attack as we've seen in history. That's not the Torah approach. It's not the Jewish approach. It's not the godly approach. We today have the ability, including using technology and political influence, to not just demand don't attack us, but live up to your, to your destiny, live up to your mandate, live up to the mission for which you were created. Now I understand if you're sitting, if someone's coming to attack you, or attack a synagogue, or attack a Jew, you start yelling at them, hey, we live up to your mandate. Obviously, I'm not discussing that, because that person is now in a situation of being a, a, a perpetrator, an attacker, and you have to treat that in the fullest sense of the word, defend, and Put that person away. Whatever it takes. Because they're dealing with protecting life. But I'm talking about an overall climate. Not, we're talk, not talking during an attack. We're talking about how to educate our children and what language we should use in the public forum and what the media should be sharing. And I want to dedicate a few words to the media. The media which has become just an entertainment industry of sensationalism very often, fans these flames because that's what creates. I've been invited many times to interviews. They want me to fight with the other person. So I said, I'm not going to fight with them. And then they actually been told not they can't interview me because they need that tension. I said, I can disagree, but it's going to be civil. No, they want to fight. They want you to yell. They want the other person to yell. So they're fanning these flames. It's like the... The media, they're basically putting the camera on the tensions and, of course, exaggerates it and turns it into a wrestling match to gladiators. And people love blood. People love a fight. The voyeuristic society in which we live is watching and observing other people fighting. The media has a great responsibility because they disseminate information or, unfortunately, misinformation to pass on this message. Why? I've said this to a number of media people I know. Why shouldn't you at least have equal time? Bring voices that will speak about, in a way, how can diversity be not turned into divisiveness? How can we disagree in a civil and a beautiful way? How can we love each other even when we don't agree with each other? Why don't you have interview people like that? And be very honest, people have told me it doesn't sell. It's not sellable. It's too, too nice. So when you have a climate where blind, the blind leading the blind... 
and the media is feeding on this frenzy. And the frenzy, the mobs are saying, well, we're looking at the media, and everybody's blaming each other. What do you have? And you have a vacuum of leadership. So I'm proposing that we need to create a revolution, and that has to come from us, the grassroots. I don't believe it's going to come from the top down. A revolution of a different way of looking at each other. And you have to begin young, from birth and even before that. That's where prejudices are developed in our formative years. Impressionable children hearing from their parents, from educators, from the media. And each of us can do something about this. We cannot say, you know what, what's my voice going to sound like amongst millions of voices, especially being amplified by the media. That's not an excuse. Because we have to speak up, be clear. We need to be clear. Moral clarity in a kind but in a firm way. Share it with everyone you know, this message, and let it become viral. I firmly believe that the fundamental core driving in a person is not evil but good. If it was evil, then of course anything you do, their natural inherent personality will emerge. But if you fundamentally believe, and this is also the difference between the two schools, two schools of thought. The first school arguing that fundamentally people are selfish, and therefore even though they may keep it at bay, keep it under control, but it's going to pop up, and they will take it out on others, including Jews. But there's another school of thought, that the human being is fundamentally good, fundamentally divine. However, we have another voice. And when you believe that, then it's a question of simply doing whatever it takes to get to that core. Like Michelangelo said, when Michelangelo, when he was asked, how do you carve those beautiful angels in the marble? He said, I see the angels trapped in the marble, and I carved and carved and set them free. That's what we need to do, set free those good, better angels within each one of us. So it's a very different way of looking at things. And I say to myself, and I say to you, if a Hitler and his henchmen could convince 100 million Germans to turn on innocent men, women, and children, or to be silent, which is also complicit, in the murder of men, women, and children, why can't we believe that we can, I don't want to say brainwash, but we can convince people, 100 million, 100, or 8 billion, to be good. Because everybody, goodness always resonates more. So if you can convince people to do something evil with enough propaganda, why can't we do the opposite? I have no doubt we can. So my perspective on this is that indeed we need to be vigilant and we need to protest and we need to make sure that call out every act of racism, violence, words, rhetoric that incites anti-Semitism, any form of racism. But at the same time, we need to be educating our children from the youngest age and demanding that, demanding this language from our leaders, political leaders, business leaders, entertainment leaders, celebrities, the media, to join this voice of goodness and kindness. Yes, to turn the pandemic we just are experiencing and coming out of experiencing or still experiencing into a pandemic of goodness and kindness. And I have no doubt that if you and I begin the process, the butterfly effect, the ripple effect, we're committed to it, 
it builds and grows because we've seen that in history. The world is a better place overall. There's plenty of challenges individually, but overall, the bird's eye view is better and we can make it even better and actually usher in a world where we do understand that diversity does not mean hatred. Diversity is simply different approaches and we find the harmony within diversity. That each one of us perhaps are, have our own perspective, of our own way, but we have one God and we're all created by that one God and one destiny. And each of us actually contributes with our own unique flavor. So instead of seeing it as competitive, it's actually complementary. Complementary, that we complement each other. That's how I believe we should be looking at the events going on today. Yes, we should be looking closely, doing whatever is necessary short term, but this is a wake-up call. A wake-up call where you can bring out the best in people. And those that are not ready for that, and they're criminals, we need to do what we need to do with the criminals. But I, have a belief, I believe firmly that the majority will, be, will respond well to this. And even that minority, slowly it will affect them as well as they see the strength of light is always going to be stronger than the strength of darkness. May we all be protected. May we all be healthy. May you be healthy. God bless you all. We're all part of one reality. So please join us. I'll join you. We join each other in this effort. This has been Simon Jacobson, MeaningfulLife.com. Please share, comment, respond, and uh, let's join together. The synergy is more than the sum of the parts. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.